Anyway, good morning. Glad you are here. We are on our third session of Augustine. Augustine, the early church father. So if you are, this is your first week here. We are taking an historical, theological, and devotional analysis of the great Western church father. A lot of courses will do the historical and the theological. Where this one differs, we are taking a devotional look as well. Taking a devotional question each week, considering it as it relates to the life of Augustine, and then trying to answer it. So the title for this session, session three, is The Conversion of a Wayward Soul. We've been going in that direction of of his ultimate conversion. He's been in a life of sin. Even though he was raised familiar with Christianity, he did not accept it for decades. He's very wayward, but putting it, framing it like this is a more accurate way to put it, because some other people will categorize Augustine as just this, as, as something else, as though it's just um, like he's a sex fiend, or he's uh, just other things that they say. But really, he is a soul that longs for truth, and he didn't find it for a long time, or at least he rejected the truth for a long time. So we've been kind of teasing his conversion for a bit now, and today we're going to get into it. The question that we're asking, the devotional question, relates to one of his biggest issues prior to converting. And that was the issue of evil. And so the question we're looking at is, how do we reconcile a good creator God with the existence of evil? This is not a new problem, it's a very old one, but it's one that he struggled with on his way to conversion. So, to give you a brief recap, he has been teaching in Carthage for some time. He has a, a mistress that he lives with, kind of like a common-law wife in modern terms. They never married. Uh, she bore him a son. His, their son's name was Adiodatus. That's what he named his son, and that means given by God, which is interesting. He, he's not a Christian, and he named his son given by God. It's fascinating. You can see like the, the influence and God working, even when he doesn't know what's going on. So his son was born before, his eight, before Augustine's 18th birthday, and he lives faithfully with his mistress, with his son. Uh, we never learn her name. Her name is a mystery to us. Even though we know a whole lot of things about him, that's one thing we just don't know. Going on in the world stage, in 381, Christianity is declared the state religion. But to give you an idea that the empire is going through, uh, it's trending downward, getting on its last legs. And 383 is when the Roman legions begin to evacuate Britain. They're, they're reining in their troops. They're being taken over in various places. It's a time of transition in the empire. Around that same time, Augustine gets sick of Carthage. Uh, he moves with his son and his uh, mistress. They go to Rome. Uh, that, it's a disaster in Rome. He gets sick as soon as he gets there. Uh, so that stops him from being able to work for some time. And once he does start working, as any international student here could probably sympathize with, they make fun of him for his accent. And he doesn't get good opportunities there. And then the students that he does get they run into this issue. Uh, you could audit courses back then, kind of like today. You can sit for free and just hear a sample of a, of a class. And you could hear X amount of classes before you have to pay. 
And what Augustine's students in Rome would do all the time, they would come to him, they'd make fun of him for his accent, they'd sit and listen to a couple of his lectures, and right before they'd have to pay, they'd bounce out of his class and go to somebody else. These were these rich kids who were on their parents' dime, who just doing what they had to do, but they didn't, they didn't care about what they were actually doing. So it, it's a disaster for him in Rome. He doesn't even last a year there. So he moves on that same year to Milan. Now Milan is in the north part of modern-day Italy. He goes there, and this is a career move. You ever done a career move before? It just That's where everything started working out is after that. This was a career move for him. Not only does he find success in teaching, and he's teaching rhetoric and logic, mostly rhetoric. Uh, so he, finds, he comes across professional success, but he also hears of Ambrose. Now, Ambrose is the bishop of Milan. Not only is he a bishop, but he was the former mayor and ordained deacon. He's a presbyter. I swear this guy could have been king of the world with all the titles he had. He was a leading moral and spiritual authority in the Latin world. He's the guy, Christian or not, you knew Ambrose. He's popular, he's very well known. And so first off, Augustine draws near to Ambrose, not because he, he's a Christian yet, or he wants to hear a sermon, or wants to hear the Bible taught. Like, this guy's a master of rhetoric, I do rhetoric. I want to learn from and see, like, is this guy all that he's cracked up to be, really? So he starts drawing in. He goes to Ambrose's church, and he starts hearing sermons. And at first, he's just there to see, is this guy really all he's cracked up to be? Come on. You know, it's like if we were to go to John MacArthur's church. And we're like, okay, I heard a lot about you. Let's see, Johnny, are you really as good as they say? And then, of course, it's a great sermon. And so he goes to Ambrose for those reasons. He wants to hear... This, how good he is rhetorically and logically. But, and, and it did greatly impress him. And Ambrose also had tremendous wisdom and knowledge to go with his rhetoric. Do you remember his conversation with Faustus, the Manichaean leader? How Faustus was so good at rhetoric, but wasn't giving him anything of substance. Couldn't answer the contradictions. Well, Ambrose was intelligent too. So that backed up everything that... He didn't get from Faustus. So it started appealing to him. He's drawing near. He's hearing him preach. At first, just to see what it's all about. But he found himself coming back every Lord's Day. He was listening to these sermons. He's still not ready to convert. But he's listening. He's being stirred a little bit. He, he's hearing what's going on. For the first time, Augustine comes to see that Christianity isn't so far-fetched so fanciful, so unbelievable, as he once thought. Again, he's not converted yet, but it had answers to questions that he couldn't get anywhere else. Uh, one of the big things that changed with him, Ambrose unlocked for Augustine, and this will be a big deal later in his life, the allegorical interpretation of Scripture. Okay, so in modern days, we don't, we don't do this very much anymore. Sometimes I think, uh, to a fault, we don't do it. But we try to interpret everything as contextual and literal as possible. If it says that the walls came tumbling down when they marched seven times, that literally happened. And that, that's okay. I'm not saying that we should question that. But there are times in Scripture where he would have a tremendous difficulty to reconcile that with other parts of Scripture, with real life. 
And then Ambrose would give an allegorical interpretation. That's kind of like a, what we would say, spiritualizing the text. Like you take out spiritual meanings from it and apply it to life. So what's important is not did this physically literally happen. It's more what is the spiritual truth behind it and does that correlate with real life? Okay, so Ambrose interpreted the scriptures allegorically a ton and that appealed to Augustine. And so that was kind of the breakthrough for him. At, at first, again, no conversion yet. However, at this same time, Augustine was beginning to sense an extreme emptiness in his life. He's 30 years old when he moves to Milan, uh, but he thinks of himself as mostly a failure. He hasn't succeeded. He, he was okay in Carthage. It didn't work out for him in Rome. That was supposed to be his career move. Didn't work out. Now he's in Milan, and it's getting better, but most of his life he thinks he's a failure. He's, uh, he's got no joy. He's not a happy guy. He's miserable. He's got no direction. He doesn't, like, is this all there is? I'm just going to teach rhetoric and struggle my whole life? Like, he's really struggling at this time. Not only that, but he is a slave to his lust. He, he engages in debauchery once in a while. He's a weak man. He's unsure what, what is the truth. He, he's, go, he's gone between a couple ideas now. Manichaeism, he went to the New Academy, which were the skeptics. And now he's just kind of, like, he's still in their circles, but he's attending this church now, not ready to convert. He's getting, he's in a pretty tough time. Not, not doing well in his mind, mentally. He recalled a story, he wrote about this story. He's walking the streets of Milan one night. He and his uh, very close friend of his. He's walking and he sees this guy uproaring in laughter and all happy. It was a beggar. You know, if you walk downtown, especially if you go to the bigger cities, Toronto, Montreal, you see beggars everywhere. He sees a beggar in the streets of Milan, and this guy is happy. He seems well-fed, probably from the few bucks that he just got from begging that day. So he, he had recently eaten. He's laughing with people on the street. He's telling jokes. He's an uproarious guy. And he said that he and his friend looked at each other, and for a moment they didn't have to say anything because they were thinking the same thing. But then they would talk about it. How is it? That this guy, a beggar, who has to scrape for any dollar that he can get, can have so much happiness. And we, ostensibly successful young men, are miserable. That was, that experience hit him like a truck. Like, how is this possible? I have a girl, I got a kid, I have a job, I'm in a nice city, my mom loves me. Like, this guy's begging on the street, and he's happy. I'm miserable. That hit him like a truck. He had a restless soul. He had been wayward for 30 years. He recalls at that same time, he would have given up on everything in that moment, except, this is a quote, nor did anything call me back from a still deeper plunge into carnal pleasure, except, one, the fear of death and of thy future judgment which amid all the waverings of my opinions never faded from my breast. Okay, so he's, think, he's in this pretty bad time and he's flirting with plunging further in. What kept him from the edge? Fear of death? The truth of God's future judgment. Where did he hear those things from? Especially the one about God's future judgment. He was hearing it from Ambrose. 
when he was coming to church, even though he wasn't converted yet, he was internalizing things. He was hearing it. You know, when we bring people to church and we want them to convert on the spot and they're not ready to and they don't do it, don't think that it's not accomplishing something. It's the same thing when Monica, his mother, is trying to raise this boy and has no idea what he's going to become, probably thinks that what she's doing is wasted. But God doesn't waste it. He uses it and it shapes him. And it's amazing how God works these things out. And it's just amazing that a man who is not ready to be a Christian yet fears a future judgment. Where do you get that from? Of course, he's hearing it from Ambrose, but it's an inner fear. He'll end up talking about how that comes from our soul, which is created by God and it longs for God. I'm going to jump ahead a bit and say one of the most famous quotes that Augustine ever said. You've probably heard a form of it, but it is, my soul is restless until it finds its rest in you. That is it's a very popular line. Augustine's the one who wrote that. And you can see how it relates so much to his life. So anyway, he still has two remaining issues as he's gradually drifting towards Christianity. Number one, seeing God as a spiritual being who created a material world that is good. That's tough for him. Remember Manichaeism, uh, material bad, not, that was all old Gnostic belief, material bad, spiritual good. Uh, these two powers of good and evil are always fighting each other and to see who will win, I don't know. So he's being taught that God is a spiritual being. Okay? So he doesn't have flesh and bones like us. He's spirit. That's good. Remember, spirit, good. But he created material and flesh and it's good too? That was, that was a tough one for him. So that was number one. And then the other issue, so that, that's an intellectual issue. And the second one is a moral issue. He did not have a willingness to adopt a moral lifestyle. He wasn't ready to give up his sin yet. Those were his two issues. There was something that solved his first issue, Platonism. Now, this is where I'm going to have to ask, you might have to think a little bit to follow along with this. It, it, this is philosophy here. I remember sitting in my uh, philosophy class during my, my studies, and my professor, he is teaching about Platonism, among, amongst other things, and most people are like, come on, why do I need this? Some Greek guy, cool. It's, they don't love it. But because my professor was passionate about it, and he loved what he was teaching, and it made sense, like, it makes it easier to get excited about something when the teacher is excited about it. Look, I like Platonism. I like philosophy. It's, there's good ideas here. And Platonism is going to help solve his first issue. So we're talking about the issue of evil. Augustine sees evil everywhere. Manichaeism helped him with the idea of evil. Well, of course, there's an evil being and a good being, and they're battling. Of course, there's evil on earth. Well, in Christianity, God and Satan are not in some equal war with each other. This is God's world. God created it. He is king. Satan is not. This is not an even fight. It's not a fair fight. And so why is there evil in the world? Why do bad things happen? Well, this is where Platonism steps in. Platonism teaches him that evil actually doesn't have real existence on its own. I will explain. Everything is created good by the supreme being. We'll, 
we'll, we'll call him the supreme being for now, because Platonism is not directly Christian. Everything is created good by the creator. And if everything is created good, he did that out of his own nature. So the being is good, and what he creates is good, but there's evil. So since this good creator can't make anything contrary to your nature, none of us can do anything contrary to our nature, he can only make good things. Evil, then, is just a defect of the good, or a, um, it is the absence of good. So if God, or if good is everywhere, but then good takes a step back from a room, that is then evil, where good is no longer there. It's not like a warring power. It's more like the result when good is not there anymore. That might sound confusing for now. We'll, we'll continue. It's, so evil is the perversion or the, uh, the absence of good. It's not a substance of its own. So Platonism. In Platonism, there are basically two forms that express everything. There is the intelligible and there is the sensible. The intelligible is, we can't see it. This is the upper realm. The higher realm, uh, we can only understand it kind of through, Augustine calls it our mind's eye. Uh, when you discover, take a mathematician, they discover a, a proof, a mathematical proof, and they get real excited that they have discovered something purely true. You can't see a physical formula or the truth of the math. All You, you can just kind of get a glimpse of understanding of it. So it's tough to explain, but essentially it's the more spiritual, you can't see, you can't touch, you can't feel. It is the upper realm. And then this is the sensible, perceived by our senses. It's the physical, the, the lower realm, that is here. So that is important because that's when we get into Plato's forms. Have you ever heard of Plato's forms before? This is the like base level of what Platonism is. Think of a horse. This will help. Think of a perfect horse. Now, I can probably tell you what your horse looks like. It's probably brown. It's probably perfect in dimension. It probably is a regular-sized horse. It's not a miniature horse. It's got no defects on it. You're thinking of, it's got no spots, no stripes. It's just a pure brown horse with a black tail. That's probably the horse you're thinking of. Does the perfect Ideal, 100% perfect horse exist on Earth. Well, no. You I mean you look at any horse on Earth? They, they have different colors, or maybe their hoof is not didn't develop properly. They got teeth problems. There's something a little bit off about every horse that you look at. So, if you're looking at a horse that is not a 100% perfect horse, is it not a horse? No, it still is, but Everything is trying to, is imaging whatever the ideal is. So there is a perfect horse out there in the intelligible. The perfect horse exists up in the upper realm, and all the horses that we have here are the sensible. They're trying to, they're copies of what's up here, but they're imperfect copies. There's, it's the absence of a perfect horse. Yet it is still a horse, same with a tree. I tell you to think of a perfect tree. It, it's probably brown, it's got a nice height, the leaves are perfectly symmetrical all around, it's beautiful and it's filled. You're not going to think of a cracked tree or one that only grew on the right and not on the left. 
the perfect tree exists up in the upper realm, and all of these trees here are copies of it. And so that, what we have here, the horses and the trees that we experience are kind of lesser versions, but still copies of whatever the perfect form is. So now think of our souls and us as people. God is a spiritual being who is perfectly good, and he has created people who also have souls. There is a spiritual part to us. We are created in the form of God, but we are not God. There is an absence of, com of perfection in us, an absence of complete good. We are not created with the same purity that God is. We cannot be God. But perfection does exist in God. So here's where the Neoplatonism comes in. Neo is in, it's not, it's the more Christian version, I guess you could say. It would teach, and this is what convinced Augustine, all of the perfect forms are found within God and his nature. Everything perfect is rooted in him. Platonism has, on its own, has the issue of, okay, what, what is the root of all of these forms of perfection? They don't really have an answer, and it goes in different ways. Well, in Christianity, it's within God who is the unifier of all things. He makes all things. He is the one who holds the perfect form of all things within himself. And it, it comes that way with our souls as well. Our souls are from the intelligible, but we are experiencing it in the lesser here, in the material, until we die. So everything is created good. Only good can come from the perfect being. So how does evil come about? There's that question again. Well, Augustine said that he, he's thinking about all these things, about forms. He closes his eyes. He meditates for a bit. Where does the evil come from? Okay. It's coming from my own will. I'm willing to do something that I shouldn't do, or I don't do what I should do. It's coming from within me. He was saying that it's my will that causes me to do things that I shouldn't do. There's something wrong with our will. It is the corruption of what was originally good. So the problem's not with God. He didn't create the evil. The problem is the corruption of what is good. Evil is not a form up in the intelligible. Like All the forms that are held in God, evil's not one of them. So then when we're getting it in the sensible here in, on this world, it's not coming from God. A good being cannot hold perfect evil. So that, that's where, how he's understanding it. God made a good world. The things in the material world were good, as you can read in Genesis, but corruptible. Able to be corrupted, which just meant the withdrawing of the presence of the good. Okay. So this is what he's looking at, and at the same time, he's still going to church, and he's reading some of the Bible. He, he's reading John 1. You know John 1. It might be worth turning to. We'll go to 1 Corinthians after. But in John 1, right in the beginning, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life. And his life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Can you see how somebody who is thinking about these ideas of forms and Platonism and good and evil, how this would affect a man like that? He says, wow, the one who came from perfect intelligible, God, is the word. 
he took on the flesh, material, to come here into the sensible to give us a glimpse of pure goodness, the perfection. That would, that would appeal to a mind like Augustine. So he's reading that, and then the second passage that really impacted him was in 1 Corinthians 1. In 1 Corinthians 1, 24, Paul writes, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. That phrase, wisdom of God. Wisdom is held up in here by the Creator. And Christ came to be the wisdom of God. We are getting a glimpse of wisdom that nobody else can have in Jesus Christ. So, he's getting closer. This non-material word, logos, comes in. He's made flesh. That's helping him through this idea. But Platonism, could, on its own, could not compete with that Christian idea. That of John 1 being the wisdom of God. Platonism, on its own, can't compete with that. But these mixing of ideas is getting him closer. He also starts getting into the value of self-examination. He's talking about the soul a little bit. He's getting an idea that it's a copy from, from above, from God. So we should stop looking at the stars for answers to our lives. Stop going to horoscopes. Stop going to fortune tellers, which was part of Manichaeism. Stop going to these other things to try to find truth. It's not up there in the sky. Actually, there's a lot of truth that can be found from within your soul. Now, if that sounds new agey, that's not how he understood it. He's understanding this as the Lord made the soul, or some creator made our soul from, from good. So we would call this like an inner conviction. You know, when you have a conviction that something is right, he's starting to get a sense of that too. So stop looking at these other things. You can actually get things from the witness inside your conscience. He's moving along his journey. He's thinking about joining the church, but he still had that other issue of morality. Um, it was during this time, actually, when he prayed one of his famous prayers that he, he recalled that he said to the Lord, Lord, make me chaste and give me continence, but not yet. <laughs> you ever feel like that? <laughs> you ever done that before? His mother actually came to Italy, too. She was the one who was... Uh, she was so sorrowful when he moved away. She went up, met up with him in Milan. She, persuade, she persuaded Augustine to send his mistress away. Didn't think it was right. And so he, he obeyed. He sent her away. We're going to take a deeper look at that sometime in the future. But um, she wanted to find him a suitable wife instead, one from a more equal class. These are things that we don't get much today, but it was a big deal then. This would have not made headlines back then. But uh, she wanted to find him a suitable wife from a good class, and the option that was presented to him, he's 30 to 32 years old in this time, is a 10-year-old girl. That would have not been given any gas back in the day. This was normal. Now, the legal age to marry was 12. So he had to wait two years before he was allowed to marry this girl. And understandably, he was not excited about this prospect. She's like 20 years his junior. And the, so the legal age is 12. He's not happy about this. He actually breaks it off. No solid options are being presented to him. His friends try to hook him up, try to find him a girl. You know, that doesn't work out either. He's, he wants to marry and to settle down. And he had been in a faithful relationship with his mistress for 12 years. 
So that appeals to him. He wants to marry and all that. But he's also now hearing about these stories of the solitary life, that of celibacy and of staying single for life and the, monastery, the monasterial life. That stuff is starting to get into his head too. But he didn't want that. So he, he actually took another concubine at this time. He, it, again, give me continence, but not yet. He found another, another woman for a time. It didn't last long. So intellectually, mentally, he's getting in a good spot. But he's not in a good spot with his morality and with his emotions, with his mental state um, in, in terms of his mental health. And he started slipping back into a depression. It, he, he's in a very dark time. And it's when he needed somebody to talk to that he goes back to Ambrose's church and he finds a listener and a friend in Ambrose's assistant. So he couldn't, Ambrose was a, he's a pastor, you know, he's always, he, he put his energies mostly into the people who were members of his church. Back then, to be the bishop of a church, there was only one Christian church. Everybody went to that church. It's not like today where you have like 30 churches in a city to choose from. Like, there's only one Christian church, and everybody goes there. So he's very busy with the different people that he's with, and he's not, he can't give too much time to an Augustine when he's got 50 saints that he, you know, to work with. So he, but he gets time with Ambrose's assistant, and he finds a listener and a friend in him, and this friend spoke of dramatic conversions of other people in, high, in upper uh, realms of authority in the Roman Empire. These people are converting. Those on the Senate, judges... Uh, other professors like him are converting. Not only that, but many of them abandoned great careers and adopted monasticism. This is where we get monks from. They kind of go to their monastery and they write, they read, they pray, they meditate, uh, but they don't. They try not to give in to the flesh. They're very aesthetic. They try to beat their flesh, so to speak. This was becoming increasingly popular, especially. Uh, in Italy and in North Africa at the time. Monasticism was really spreading. It was getting more of an appeal to him. But then it was at this point that he also noticed a second will appearing in him. Remember how Christianity always seemed so kind of far-fetched? Well, it was in this time that he started sensing a will to surrender to God. He, he didn't do it yet, but he noticed this is appealing, something he didn't have before. So in this time of despair, his despair is his empty and inadequate life, he was torn. There's hedonism on the one side, give in to, give in to carnal pleasures, feed my flesh, and monasticism, completely deny my flesh, focus on the spiritual, on prayer, meditation, things like that. Hedonism, monasticism. He wanted the latter. He wanted this, but he couldn't let go of this. You, you've ever been there before? It was in this condition when his famous conversion event happened. He's outside, kind of like in a backyard, and three fences over. This is not literally true. This is a, uh, but so, he's outside, and he hears kids. And these kids are going singing like a dance tune or something like that. And he hears one of the kids sing, Toye Lege. Toye Lege. Toye Lege. It means take up and read. I thought that was strange. He, he had heard Toye Lege before, but not in that tune, not, not like that. He's like, what? It was weird. He, go, he goes inside, and he looks for the first scripture that he can find off on his desk, on the floor. He picks one up, and he 
he had heard of this happening before. People just opening up the Bible, playing Bible roulette, landing on a passage, and it is like impactful to them. You know, like a life verse, you find your life verse by playing Bible roulette. Well, he plays Bible roulette. And the verse that he happens to come to, if your Bible is open, please go to Romans 13. He's confused. He picks up a portion of scripture, opens it up, lands on a text, and Romans 13, 13 to 14 show up. 13, 13 says this. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Here is a quote from Augustine. I wanted to read no further, nor did I need to, for instantly as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. End quote. You see how the Lord works even through our imperfect ways of doing things. You know, that, that's not a responsible way to read the text is play Bible roulette. And yet the Lord still used that at the right time. He read this, he broke down, he surrendered to Christ. Now, this is a mark of a true conversion. His life instantly changed. He was never the same after that moment. It wasn't like, oh yeah, I guess I accept Christ. No, he was a new man after that. And on, so he changed and he persevered to the end. That's the other mark, do they persevere? He persevered to the end. The implications took some time to catch up with him. Putting on the Christian worldview, a Christian mindset, growing in his knowledge. It took time for the implications to really catch up. But he immediately did change. He told his mother. Can you imagine being Monica in that moment? He tells his mother. She leaps for joy. Her greatest prayer had been answered. All her agony, her prayers, her tears paid off. There's a story of Monica going to one of the pastors in Africa, crying about his boy who was moving away, who was in a life of sin, all this stuff. And the pastor is sick of her coming all the time. And he says this one thing. He says, there's no way that the son of all these tears can perish. Basically saying, the way that you are praying for him and you love him and you long for him, God is going to save this guy. Now, he didn't know that for sure, but that was his way of saying, go away. <laughs> Augustine is converted, and immediately he starts making plans to get baptized at, at the next Easter baptismal service. He had a few months to prepare. The service would be in 387. He converted in 386. He went into retreat, and he began writing several treatises that would later on define his life. Uh, one of the things that he wrote was on his conversion. And that is really cool, that we have a conversion account from somebody who did it so close to the actual event. Like you, get, you can see like the beauty of a conversion, but also that he didn't get everything yet, and it, and it was okay. It took some time. It's really a nice writing. So we can read of the simplicity of a man who was still absorbing the momentous change and the implication of that experience, but that is the story of Augustine's conversion. He never went back. He never looked back after. He was a Christian until his dying day. And we'll get into how his Christian life 
develop further next week. But how do we reconcile a good God with evil in the world? Well, one way that we answer it oftentimes today is, can God have a morally sufficient reason for allowing evil on earth? If you grant that, debate over, conversation over. Everything that happens, evil, we say we have a sovereign God, and he allows evil. Well, if God is sovereign and he's allowing evil, that means he has purpose for it. There is no such thing as purposeless evil. I don't know how Christians who do not embrace the sovereignty of God get over this. Because a God who is not sovereign can't have full intention and purpose for allowing bad things to come. See, any of us who have lived a bit and gone through some things know that God is faithful, maybe especially through the hard times, through the times where evil happens. It's usually afterward where you can see, oh, wow, look how God worked, worked that one out for his glory, for my good. How? Well, I wouldn't have seen it at the time, but I saw it later. And if you trusted him in those times, that would make seeing it whole lot easier, giving glory to him a whole lot easier too, rather than fighting against it, shaking our fists, how dare you God, how dare you does God have a morally sufficient reason for allowing evil of course, we're not God, we don't know his ways are higher than our ways but the way that Augustine answered it our wills are corrupt in sin God has this hand of restraint on us and he removes his restraint at times and when he does we naturally fall into the corruption in our nature, our corrupt nature. So God restrains evil as a, and sin as a testimony of his love and providence, but he removes restraint on people. For his people as discipline, he'll remove restraint, and for the ungodly as judgment. He removes his restraint from evil. But this is his world, and we, just like creation, are made good but we have become corrupt. His gospel frees us from our corrupt nature, gives us a new nature, and all creation is groaning for redemption, which awaits the final day. So that is Augustine 3. Come back next week for the next part of his life.